We acknowledge the First Nations people as the traditional custodians of the land we are on today. We acknowledge and pay respect to all elders, past, present and emerging. The Now in the Future podcast is an exciting way of sharing members' stories of opportunities, challenges and provide support and expert advice for Down Syndrome community. Down Syndrome Queensland's vision is to support, advocate for empower people with Down Syndrome to take their rightful places as valuable and contributing members of their community both now into the future. Today's episode of the Now in the Future podcast is about Down Syndrome Regression Disorder. Down Syndrome Regression Disorder is a condition that affects young people with Down Syndrome and is characterised by an unexpected and severe regression in speech and functional ability. Additional features such as extreme and disabling slowness can also occur. Causes for this are often unclear and very upsetting. Today's podcast is a condensed version of a webinar that we ran in March 2023 with Dr. Kathy Franklin from the Marta Intellectual Disability and Autism Service, who is leading research into this condition. Dr. Franklin talks to us about what we have learnt so far about Down Syndrome Regression Disorder. If you would like to listen to the entire webinar, it's available on our Down Syndrome Australia website under the Resources tab by clicking webinars. I will also place the link to the webinar in the show notes. In this first section, Dr. Franklin talks to us about what regression disorder is and also what regression disorder is not. So first up, what is regression? Regression, the word means going backwards. And when we use it in this context, we're talking about going backwards, really mostly in skills. And there are different things that cause regression, the word, as opposed to regression, the disorder. Um, So the best way to think about regression is it's the opposite of progression. Progression is a step forward. Regression is a step back. In broad terms across the lifespan, um, the phenomenon of taking a step back in skills or functional level is actually not uncommon. Um, It certainly occurs at various stages in childhood, you um, you might remember as, as um, kids are approaching a milestone at, where they're going to have a leap in skill, sometimes they take a sort of step back first while they're regrouping. Um, so that can be normal. We also see um, a regression uh, occurring as part of autism where you might in early childhood, so ages um, you know, one to three, where the child develops normally initially, but then starts to lose speech and social skills. And that can be slow or rapid. And that's really, we would call that an autistic regression. Regression can also be caused by stress, illness, grief, medical problems. Um, And it's also, I've mentioned autism spectrum disorder. It also occurs in other um, disorders and issues as well. And I can see Down syndrome spelt wrong slide (laughs) Uh, because Down syndrome isn't a thing. so if we've just got regression the word in some in a in a person that you're supporting what's the what's the first thing to think about from a health professional point of view the first thing to think about is excluding um health causes 
broadly the the other we think about environment and what's happening there as well and making sure that there's no abuse or other bullying other things happening but from a health point of view we're thinking about common conditions to exclude and for someone with down syndrome these are the things that i'm thinking about thyroid disease celiac disease and sleep apnea are um, all much more common in down syndrome than they are in um in other people, including other people with intellectual disability. Um, hearing and eye conditions are also more common in people with Down syndrome than other people. And those hearing and eye conditions, particularly eye conditions, can be, um, they can sneak up on you and it can not be evident. So um, that's important to remember as well. The other things are really on that list are so constipation and dental problems, they're just two of the common health conditions that can cause pain. Um, and then psychiatric and mental health problems can occur too. So really with that list, we, we really recommend that people have an annual health check. And if they've got any problems, that's the first, that's the first stop. Um, in Australia, we have the CHAP health tool, um, which I'll mention when we get down to investigations with more details, and there's a link to it later. And there's also um, Down Syndrome to You is an online kind of health check um, that Brian Scott Coast Group have developed that I'll cover later, but they're just there to remind me. Um, so what are the other conditions we think about? Um, I've got to say this patient group, um, I still, and what sort of got me starting that ICARD study was we kept having um, 18-year-olds coming with severe regression who'd been diagnosed with um, dementia at the age of 18. And um, and that's dementia is a devastating diagnosis at any age, but for an 18-year-old, it's awful. In Down syndrome, where we know that Alzheimer's um, disease does come on at a younger age, you don't start to see clinical symptoms of that until over age 40. 50% of people with Down syndrome um, will have some features of Alzheimer's. Um, so if we're seeing 18-year-olds or 20-year-olds, it's not going to be dementia. Sorry to go on about that. Another thing that, um, that my patient group coming through clinic get diagnosed with is late-onset autism. There actually isn't late-onset autism is the short version. Um, the reason that this diagnosis comes about is that we'll, when we get on and talk about features of DSRD, you'll see that several of them are autistic-like. So the really important things there are that diagnosis of autism um, requires that there's um, features present in the early developmental period. So that's in the first three, ideally three years, but maybe three to five years of life. So not a picture where someone's um, had no features of autism and then suddenly when they're 15 or 18, suddenly um, develop all of these issues. That's not going to be autism. Um, so the really important thing there and the important thing when you're taking someone to, to supporting someone to see a health professional is to be able to communicate what their um, functioning was like before they developed the problems because it's... Um, it's a common thing in this patient group that um, health professionals who are not familiar with the area just assume that people were always the way they see them. Um, and so that's the main thing to communicate is the change. And the last thing just to sort of cover in the, you know, what it's not is, is it just Down syndrome? Now that's 
quite a pejorative way of talking about it, but that also kind of leads into what features are normal in Down syndrome. Um, and that's also another thing that's difficult for health professionals particularly to, to understand. But also um, if you're um, a family member or you're supporting someone um, who has Down syndrome, um, you know, it's people will say, oh, is this, is this, normal or is this an illness and that that's quite a thing to to get your head around at times some of the features that we would consider normal or part of the behavioral phenotype is the long word um, in down syndrome um, that are relevant when we're looking at dsrd are the thinking patterns and they're taking time and difficulties with um, expressive language particularly talking to yourself um, getting um, stuck on things um, they're probably the main things that that may um, that may people might go oh maybe it's just down syndrome or it's someone most commonly the question arises when someone's been under stress of one sort or another um, so that at this age it's often bullying or siblings moving out or major life changes or grief um, where all of us when we're under stress our aspects of our personality and how we normally run become more accentuated. We would all know that. Um, sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes that's not very helpful for the people that we live with. And it's the same for people with Down syndrome. But some of those features on that list are the things that you see more prominently when someone's under stress. So that's something to keep in mind. So you might be wondering, but I still haven't talked about what DSRD is, but I'm going to tell you from a research point of view what we know. The reason for that is that um, the vast majority of people, including health professionals, have not heard of this diagnosis. Um, so it's it's good to know what the what the basis is, and I guess for people to know that it's not just something that someone's picked up on Google. Um, what we know so far is that we know the characteristics are reasonably well described. We've got a consensus on the name. Um, We've got a list of um, investigations that are suggested. We think that psychosocial stresses might be involved in at least triggering what's happening. And we have case reports and case series to suggest that the best treatments are lorazepam, ECT and IVIG, but not, not in that order. We don't have enough information to order them. And um, we don't know much at all about um how good TMS is. There are other medications also talked about in isolated cases. But when I say we have case reports, um, that's really in this day and age of evidence-based medicine, it's not ideal. So a lot of in um, things like if you have blood pressure or if you have a heart attack, there's been so many well-designed trials done that people can calculate your risk and um, based on that calculation, tell you, for example, what medications you need to take to prevent having a heart attack. But we are nowhere near that level. Case series and case reports have got there's issues in because people know that you're measuring them, all that sort of stuff. So it's a good start, but it's not when you go to a neurologist or a, um, a health professional and they look at that, they're like, mm, um, because it's, it's, not, it's not what we need. So we're on a journey to get better evidence. It, as you could probably imagine, it is challenging um, for a number of reasons. Some of the challenges around um, doing research in this group is that 
is, is it ethical to have some people, when you do a trial, you normally some people have the treatment and some people don't, and then you compare um, who gets who gets better. Um, that's not really ethical to do with something as devastating as Down syndrome regression. And then also there are some challenges around the actual treatments. So it's actually difficult to um, pretend to give, well, pretend to give someone IVIG, you still have to stick a needle in them. Um, or, for example, or pretend to give them ECT, you would technically still have to anesthetize them. So it's it's tricky. Um, I wanted to also point out what we don't know. We don't know what causes this condition. We don't know. We don't have markers or investigations to prove that's what it is. Um, we don't know how um, some of the treatments work. Um, well, to be honest, we, and we just have some theories about how some of them work as well. Um, so the problem in practice is that we really we lack the level of evidence to really insist that these treatments are necessary and that's where it gets tricky getting getting help and and moving moving forward so um, that's really where the research world is up to currently in the next part of this podcast Dr. Franklin talks to us about some of the features that would suggest Down syndrome regression disorder. What makes me think DSRD? Because I hear lots of people describing cases to me. What makes me sit up and go, yeah, I think that's it, or no, I don't think that's it. The really big headline things are that there's a, a rapid and a significant decline in functional skills over about the course of six months. So a common example would be someone who um, has finished school, um, reasonable level of independence, might be able to get the bus by themselves, might be going out to activities or whatever, or, or work. Um, they might be able to independently get public transport. They're independent with um, showering and dressing and eating. They have some support at home around food prep, that sort of level. Um, suddenly they um, stop going out stop talking and need help getting dressed. So that kind of significant decline. When I say significant, I mean really massive change. It's going from um, independent needing um, some support to needing one-on-one 24-hour support really is often the, that's the most clear picture that we see. Um, there's a decline in their um, when there seems to be a decline, the definitions say, in their cognitive skills, which is harder to pick up because um, really it's that significant loss of speech. So people um, would have been a, some in some cases um, very um, verbally able to, com able to communicate verbally um, and become almost mute or saying hardly any words at all. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be able to communicate um, verbally in order to get the condition, it just means it's most obvious in um, in that group. But along with all of these things, the other things that you, that I hear that make me go, hmm, that sounds that sounds suspicious of DSRD, is really when um, when um, parents or support people are saying we've lost them, they're in another world. I can't reach them. They're just not. They're not. They're not with us. 
Um, so there's that sense of sort of losing the person, losing skills. Um, and there can be this um, ag aggression is can occur, but it's not the it's not the number one headline. It's um, there's certainly um, they're called behavioural difficulties. But when we get on and I explain about them, I, I don't don't really think about them. They're not really behavioural. They're more um, difficulties with movement that cause challenges at home. Um, the other things we know, apart from those things, is the most common age is 10 to 30 is a very wide range. Really, I guess in our um, clinical experience, we sort of say it's more probably 15 to 25 at the highest, but probably 15 to 20 um, would be the most, most common age of onset. Um, people are generally post-puberty when it starts. As I said, it's uncommon in children. Um, and it is often associated with catatonia and depression and psychosis. So I'll talk a bit more about those because those are big clinical words as well. Um, and so those things I just talked about, they're the hallmarks, they're the headline things that really set DSRD apart from other, other conditions because the a lot of the things on this page may crop up in other conditions. Some of them are catatonia. But um, the other things that people will say, though, is people become withdrawn and they don't want to interact with other people. There's changes in their eating, their drinking and their sleep patterns. These next things are all features of catatonia. So odd movements, slowness, freezing or getting stuck in positions, difficulty starting a movement, um, loops of the same behaviour. So... Um, Maybe if you scrape your plate into the bin, the person keeps pressing the bin open, leaning forward with their plate, going to scrape it but not scrape it, lean back start and start the whole thing again, that sort of loop of motor behaviour. Um, changes in mood, there can certainly be changes of mood. There can also be inappropriate laughing and crying um, and a new onset or an increase in talking to yourself. Catatonia is a common, often treatable and misunderstood feature of Down syndrome regression disorder. In this next section, Dr. Franklin discusses catatonia a bit more. When I'm explaining catatonia, I say, catatonia is a disorder of movement and control. It can make it hard for your brain to tell your body what to do. And that really sums it up. Um, all of the funny things that we see under catatonia are summed up really nearly all in that statement. The problem is catatonia, when people say catatonia, they think of an old black and white movie or they just think of people frozen. Um, but it's actually more complicated than that. It's how your body, how your brain tells your body what to do. And um, that's the best way of thinking about it. So then I go on and explain. Um, it can make your body very slow or even completely stuck and unable to move at all. So when I hear, and I've got some interview questions that I'll go through next about how I get, take the history out. Um, your body might get stuck in unusual positions. Your body might move differently or feel stiff. You might have trouble speaking or stop speaking altogether. Your thoughts, speech and body might get stuck on the same thing. Um, when, so your speech can get stuck and you sound like a stuck record. Your thoughts can keep going back to the same um, topic again. Um, and when it's the body, you see people like trying to do something, but they, they don't 
they can't there and they sort of go to do it and then they can't then they try again and they can't um your body might also make unusual movements that you can't control and there's different classifications of what they are but um that includes mannerisms which is when your body is when you're when you've got a funny way of doing a normal thing so that's maybe for example um walking sideways down a corridor or um crawling on the floor instead of walking or um your speech sounds like a robot instead of normal speech they're all m- variations of mannerisms um stereotypies are bits of movements that don't actually achieve anything and you probably know what what um ticks are but all of those things so ticks can be part of catatonia as well you also might smile which is called grimacing or laugh or cry for no reason and i often will um hear this in the history and people family can get quite concerned you know they're like well maybe that's okay because they're laughing but i'm not really sure what they're laughing about there actually isn't anything to laugh about um and so you might the person might be sitting up in the middle of the night laughing for no reason their body might be so stiff at times that they can't lie their head back on the pillow we've got names for everything that's called a psychological pillow and that's quite famous in the textbooks too um it also might be hard to chew or swallow so that's something i ask everybody about if i'm thinking about catatonia because it catatonia is sort of a coordination thing so people might chew and just hold the food in their mouth or they will swallow it whole or um so they can and it, it can be difficult to swallow at times so um i always warn people um because if you suddenly develop problems with swallowing you can swallow food into your lungs which is bad um so keeping an eye on someone's swallow is important if they've got DSRD um particularly if it hasn't been fully assessed yet it also can be hard to do your usual activities so you might need more help with things like showering dressing toileting and moving so even moving um can be difficult so that kind of gives you it's a very diverse picture In this next section Dr Franklin talks about some of the tests that should be done if a diagnosis of down syndrome regression disorder is suspected. What tests need to be done if you have a reasonable suspicion and a health professional has a reasonable suspicion that the person you're supporting has might have DSRD what things need to be excluded. So broadly hopefully I've been able to give the message that this is a process of exclusion we're wanting to exclude the medical causes the environmental causes and to think about psychiatric causes the caveat and that's because we can treat those things the caveat is that if you've got some of those things it doesn't mean it's not DSRD you can have both you might have celiac disease and DSRD you might have sleep apnea and DSRD but the point of going through that process is to detect and treat whatever we can because any untreated condition that we can treat that we know that there's a good treatment for um a functional level will improve um there is a publication and just so you know with all of these I've done a list at the end um about of the publications so I've also kind of just referenced things throughout the talk where it's necessary but the main tests are an MRI EEG blood tests and they suggest a lumbar puncture. Now that's what the article says. Now I'm going to tell you about real life when someone has got DSRD, it takes them 4 hours to eat breakfast and um 
another four hours to get out of the house. Um, we can't put someone in a scanner um, who's got severe, um, who's in that sort of severe state. So we really have to work. Um, sometimes we have to start treatment first so that someone's well enough to be able to have a blood test or well enough to be able to have a scan. Um, we just have to do it that way around. As a doctor, I don't like doing it because I've got those neat diagrams that say always exclude medical things first. Um, but that's in real life, that's difficult. Um, it's also, you know, you can, it, people can be sedated to have a scan and blood tests. And particularly if it's someone who's got Down syndrome, autism, and before never would, would have tolerated a scan or blood test, well, they're not going to tolerate it now, maybe either. Um, so they might need sedation, but it's from a medical point of view. <coughs> um, if someone can, can escape without needing a GA, it's better for their brain and their system to do that. Um, it's so often, you know, often in this situation, we'll be able to get someone that bit better so that we can do those other tests. You just have to make sure that you do them. And a special note for the, um, and I think they haven't put sleep, a sleep study should be on that list really, and um, I might have left it off, um, which is really bad because sleep studies, just for a brief moment, I'll say sleep studies, particularly in adults, no one wants to do sleep studies because no one wants to wear sleep apnea masks, and I totally understand that. Um, however, sleep apnea is very, very, very common in Down syndrome, even when you're skinny to do with the shape of the tongue and the nose and the throat. And what happens in sleep apnea is your brain gets less oxygen. That's the problem. So if your brain, if you're a young person with Down syndrome and your brain is consistently getting less oxygen every night, it's, it's not good for your long-term function um, and it's not good for your mood or your memory or your concentration. So really... Um, we're actually, and I'll fix that. I'll fix that slide before it goes out. We really strongly recommend that everyone has a sleep study. Again, DSRD, no one is going to tolerate a sleep study, so it's not the first thing we can do. But it totally is something that should be done, um, if nothing else, to know what um, what we're dealing with. There are new treatments for sleep apnea um, that they're investigating all the time, so it doesn't always mean a mask. There are other things that can be done. So. Um, that's my little sleep apnea talk there. Lumbar puncture is on that list. So the things that a psychiatrist can organise, brain imaging, yes, blood tests, yes. To get an EEG, I refer someone to um, the neurology department and they will do an EEG. Um, but to get a lumbar puncture, that really is referring someone to a neurologist to have a lumbar puncture. And that means the neurologist has got to believe it's necessary. And that gets where, is where it gets tricky. But Jonathan Santoro would say everyone should have a lumbar puncture. Um, it's just not always physically possible. It's certainly possible to have sedation while you're having a lumbar puncture and they use um, imaging. If people don't know what a lumbar puncture is, it's a needle in the back, in your in the lower back to take out some fluid from around the spinal cord. And it tells us about, the, because it communicates with the brain, it tells us about the fluid around the brain. Dr. Franklin will now talk about some of the important stages in the Down syndrome regression disorder journey. The important thing as far as education and support in the early days is the skills are not lost, they're just buried. And trying to get that message across, we can do something about this, um, but it's going to take time. So um, 
explaining a lot of things I've just explained to you, not in that level of detail, um, instilling some hope. Um, the other things from a psychosocial kind of point of view is to for the family and support people to understand what the person's going through a bit better. And hopefully that part of the talk I've just done helps a bit with that. Um, in practical terms, um, NDIS for Australians is what I mention um, now um, because almost universally um, people will need an increased level of support from NDIS. So an important part of management, once we've um, got enough information to be able to put it into a summary, is that um, is that our advice is generally to um, seek um, additional support for the increased support needs because those support needs, even though people can see the person is improving, they're going to need support through this next phase. Um, and for most people, not all, but most, that's one-on-one -on -one support. And this is a group who probably didn't have one-on-one -on -one support before. So that means going through those NDIS processes and having the documentation to do that. So that's an important part of the early phase. The later phase. So once we've got the medications kind of balanced and in an ideal world, people have had access to IVIG, which we don't in Queensland, I'll get to that. Um, then the next phase really is the phase that uh, quite a few of my patients are in. Um, and that's learning to use skills again, or kind of a rehab approach really, where the things that have helped for my patients that I hear back that have helped the most are, depends on the person, but the recurrent themes are regular speech therapy to help them get talking again, regular exercise that might be Quite often with NDIS, that's with a personal trainer or um, exercise physiologist. Needs to be someone who is can support someone with a disability, but um, regular movement um, and strengthening. And um, it's generally one-on-one um, -on -one support, often from a support worker who, who can help the person get out of the house and go and do some things again. Um, it's really... Social things, again, are a big step. Dancing and those complex movements are big steps and some people don't get back to the big steps. People do get back to relating to family and being happy to see family again and happy with familiar faces and getting out and doing some of, some of, their, some of their things again. But this is my frustration with this condition and that's why I'm always looking for better treatments because um, very rarely can I get people back to where they were before, um, often I feel often about three quarters, maybe even four fifths of the way, but never all the way, all the way back. And you know, I aim high, um, and families aim high too. So that's where we really would like to be. So that's part of the quest for better treatments. In this last section, Dr. Franklin talks to us about how to find help. If you're trying to find help for what you think might be DSRD, it's that little level trickier because people haven't heard of it. Um, but really what you need to start with, and I'm going to go to the next slide, is in, in my opinion, and this is based on me thinking, if this was my person, what would work best? Um, so the, I think the best outcome is if you can find someone in your state, someone, I'm not being picky about whether it's a GP or a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist is probably um, more 
helpful as far as the psychotropic medications and things, but someone who can see your person when they're unwell and become an ally in their treatment and help get them better and can help if you're interested in something like IVIG or if they might need something like ECT can help. Um, I don't use the word lightly, but it's the best word, can help campaign for those things to happen because for those, um, I know that there are some families on the on this webinar today who have um, trodden this path. And I think campaign is really an accurate word. Um, why don't I just say everyone should pack up and come to Queensland? Well, for a start, because I can't get IVIG in Queensland. Well, why don't they all pack up and go to Sydney? Um, because it's still not that straightforward. It still works best to have someone locally who can help because although I, I have seen the most people in Australia and have the most experience, um, if you're trying to convince a Melbourne neurologist that a Queensland psychiatrist knows what she's talking about, it's probably going to be easier if you've got a Melbourne psychiatrist who knows the Melbourne neurology scene to get someone in. So I hope that makes sense, but that's my kind of thinking. Having said all of that, um, I am I'm very happy. I might go back to the last slide now. I'm very happy to talk to anybody. I'm very happy for people to contact us to, to try and find help. We probably know most about some options in New South Wales because we've had to learn that because that's where some people are. They're really, uh, it's really very difficult in most parts of Australia, but we know where the intellectual disability health services are. And we have, I have talked about codotonia and I have talked about this condition to that group. I have talked about this condition to the College of Psychiatrists as well. So there are a lot more people around who've heard of it now. Um, so I am, and I do have phone calls from specialists all over the place. I'm very happy to speak to that because what I would like to do is for everyone to be more aware of it and for people to be able to access treatment um, and the right treatment uh, where they live would be, um, would be great. So that's, that's my, how I'm trying to, uh, to approach that. In Queensland, if you're in Queensland, um, definitely give us a call. We know the Queensland scene best because that's where we are. Um, everyone who works at Midas knows about this condition now because we have we have probably we would have more than fifteen patients. That's an understatement, probably. Um, so do contact us. We're very happy to help you. And if, like I said before, if you've contacted and not heard back, please contact us again because what happens is we get waves of inquiries and sometimes. Sometimes we drop the ball or sometimes something happens. So um, do, do give us a call back. Um, that's okay. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Once again, this is a condensed version of a webinar that was run in March 2023. If you would like to listen to the full webinar, the link is in the show notes. At the Now in the Future podcast, we would love to hear your thoughts and questions as a way of continuing to provide essential information for the community. If you have a question or would like any more information on any of our episodes or have any ideas for future episodes, simply send us an email to engagement at downsyndromeqld.org.au. That's engagement at downsyndromeqld.org.au. And we'll do our best to provide you with the information you require in one of our upcoming episodes. The Now in the Future podcast aims to support, advocate for and empower people with Down syndrome both now and into the future. You have been listening to the Now and the Future podcast. 
for more information about this episode and many other topics related to Down syndrome, please visit the Down syndrome Queensland website at downsyndrome.org.au slash QRD. Down syndrome Queensland, supporting people with Down syndrome now and into the future.